Hello and welcome to Ten Times the Terror. <laughs> okay. This is Paul Leggett at uh, Ten Times the Terror, and today I want to talk about Bela Lugosi, who will always be remembered in terms of film history as Dracula. Uh, Bela Lugosi actually was born in Hungary in the 1882 and had a distinguished career on the stage in in Hungary uh, because of different kinds of problems with the political situation in Hungary. He fled to Germany and there he began to appear in film. One of the films he appeared in, interestingly, not the title role, but was an, uh, a version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde called The Janus Head, directed by F.W. Murno, who directed the first film version of Dracula, Nosferatu, which uh, was unseen for many decades, but remains uh, one of the most unforgettable horror films ever, even though it's very different from Bela Lugosi's Dracula. Lugosi finally made his way to, uh, to the United States and appeared on the stage in Broadway and then came out to the West Coast. He played Dracula on stage and in the tour, actually played Dracula in Los Angeles and he lobbied very hard with Universal to cast him in the lead role. For some strange reason, the executives at Universal didn't immediately think that Bela Lugosi was the obvious choice because of his portrayal on stage. Finally, though, they relented, and unfortunately, uh, in order to achieve his goal, Lugosi had to take, in effect, a cut in salary, which would be an example of, apparently, financial troubles he would have throughout his life. He also had medical problems. Uh, He became addicted to morphine just because of uh, some faulty medical treatment, and that was a, a... the consistent difficulty he had to deal with. The film Dracula is almost 100 years old and uh, is very, uh, very dated in many ways. It shows that it was part of a stage production. In any event, though, it is part of a continuing fascination with what's called the Universal Studios horror films, which really span the period from 1931 uh, to 1948, ending with Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, in which uh, Bela Lugosi plays his uh, most celebrated role of Dracula. But more about that later. Even now, there's a continuing fascination with these uh, universal horror films. Uh, books continue to be written about them, articles. They continue to be reissued in DVD and 4K and Blu-ray and so forth. So even though they're older films and they do show their age in many ways, they are continually fascinating. The main reason I think for this is that they capture the full range of Gothic awareness, the Gothic movement that began in literature in the 18th century. The 17th and 18th century saw a tremendous rise in confidence in human reason, and science to the point where if it wasn't scientifically verifiable, it didn't exist. Immanuel Kant wrote a book called Religion Within the Limits of Reason Alone. 
Well, if you take that perspective, you can't talk about miracles and you certainly can't talk about people being raised from the dead, including Jesus himself. So it was really a period uh, in which science dominated. Uh, again, the science that we're talking about here is not the science of the modern day. It was the science that was based very much on just concrete evidence. If you couldn't taste it, touch it, smell it, it wasn't, it wasn't there, it didn't exist. And this prompted a reaction against that outlook with a series of novels that became known as Gothic novels. And they were called Gothic because they were often set in crumbling castles going back to the Middle Ages and referring then to the Gothic, uh, uh, to Gothic uh, architecture and, and style. And Dracula, the novel Dracula, which appears at the end of the 19th century, is a culmination of this whole school of literature, taking the view that the modern assumptions about reason and science are way too limited and they don't take in the full range of human experience and they certainly don't take in the full range of spiritual reality. So what's interesting here is when we get into the 20th century, there is a, a carryover of the Gothic literary style into film and even drama and becomes involved with movements that were known in Germany, for example, as expressionism, where reality is really defined not by objective evidence, but by subjective experience. There was a famous film in 1920 called The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which touches on this. It deals with dreams and creates, again, the sense of a different kind of reality that goes on. This did not really come into American cinema in the early years of the 20th century. Whatever so-called horror films there were, such as Phantom of the Opera or Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, uh, did not claim to be supernatural. But the first supernatural horror film actually is Dracula. And what's notable about that is it takes on the whole 20th century confidence in science and reason and questions it. There's an actual uh, sequence in the, in the play and in the film where Dr. Von Helsing, who is really the hero, is explaining the reality of vampires. And another character who was a doctor, Dr. Seward says, but Professor Von Helsing, modern science does not admit of the existence of such creatures as vampires. Now, in the context of the film, this is presented as the closed-minded, unaware view. So it's not the people who believe in religion or spirituality who are singled out as being out of touch. It's those who are confident only in this very limited view of science and reason in this. Dracula was an enormous hit and led to uh, a whole series of horror films that came out from Universal. The next one, which is even more famous, is Frankenstein. And there's multiple stories about the making of Frankenstein, the 1931 version, which came out 
just about uh, eight or nine months after Dracula. Supposedly, Bela Lugosi had been offered the role of the monster in Frankenstein. And according to him, he turned it down. Uh, there's some other thoughts about that, that he wasn't really offered it. it was, he was in con consideration, but that they decided to go a different way. And the film made a tremendous star of Boris Karloff to the point where Karloff even eclipsed uh, Lugosi in terms of fame and, and box office attraction. There's a lot of arguments or suggestions as to why Lugosi did not have the continuing fame that Boris Karloff had or that he might have had. And, and it's hard to get the answer on this in every respect. Boris Karloff himself thought that Lugosi did not fully uh, command the English language. And so he was difficult to understand. But uh, I've seen interviews with Lugosi where he doesn't have a script in front of him, but uh, reporters are asking him questions and he understands perfectly and he's answering perfectly. He certainly understands English. It may have been his, his accent that was a factor. What really emerges though, and I think it demands further consideration when we talk about these universal films, is that they have a portrayal of evil that is, uh, is very significant. And what I would call it is um, the pride of evil. It goes back to the biblical story of the Garden of Eden where the serpent says to Eve, you will be like God. And that's a fundamental theme of these uh, universal horror films, especially the, the first eight years or so that they're done. That is characters who are trying to be God. And this forms the parameters of the, of the films themselves. So Lugosi's Dracula is, uh, in many ways, a satanic figure, but he's also a figure who is trying to be God. And there's a role that both Karloff and Lugosi play in the course of these films in the 1930s. In one, The Raven, Lugosi himself, who's a mad scientist at this point, takes the position that he is, in effect, a god. And of course, there's a great scene in Frankenstein that was cut for many cent for many decades where Frankenstein, after the creature has started to come to life, is almost hysterical. It's alive, it's alive, all of that. And the people around him are trying to calm him down. And one of them says, in the name of God, Henry. And Henry responds, in the name of God, now I know what it is, feels like to be God. And this then is presented as a position that leads, that is going to be self-destructive. Evil in these films is very self-destructive. And it's also, though, around this idea of people who are trying to be like God. Now, these films were controversial. And for a period of time, for a few years, uh, Universal and Hollywood in general stopped making them. But uh, they came back again. The point, though, that I would like to raise, I mentioned that Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, uh, early German horror film in 1920. There was a book written a number of years ago by a German film critic called Siegfried Krakauer. That was his name, and his book was From Caligari to Hitler. And he argued that the images of authoritarianism and power 
and the mad scientists and all of that really was foreshadowing what the Nazi period was going to be like, that uh, Hitler was an example of someone who had this kind of complete control and power. And where science and reason, because they became divorced from religion and faith, became corrupt. And the examples you see in that is like World War II and the Holocaust and all of that. Well, if you go back and look at these universal films in the 1930s, from like 1931 to 30, uh, through, through 1937, uh, you note the fact that there are these authoritarian figures who are trying to be God. And I think in many ways, uh, what made those films seem uncomfortable to people, too, was that it was really reflecting the political situation in the world at large. That these mad scientists and vampires and uh, crazed figures really were personifications of authoritarian political leaders, first and foremost being Hitler. And it's also interesting that a number of the people who worked on these films had come from Germany, partly because of the Depression and they couldn't find work, but they had been involved with the influence of these of these German silent films that had been pictures of potential tyrants and authoritarian leaders. And so this is really what makes these films continually fascinating. They deal with this question of absolute authority, the idea that a person can play God, a person can determine what they want to do purely on their own will. And again, to say that science and reason by themselves cannot be, but aren't beneficial. They have to be tied into some larger view of morality and of truth and indeed of spirituality. And that comes through very clearly in the original Dracula with Bela Lugosi, where the cross is used as an image uh, repeatedly. Lugosi's story is a sad one in many ways. Uh, the, there's a rebirth of the horror film in 1939 with a big production called Son of Frankenstein with Basil Rathbone in the lead role. And Rathbone had already been nominated twice for an Academy Award. Uh, Boris Karloff as the, as the monster. Uh, Lionel Atwill, who was a, a major actor in the early horror films, and Bela Lugosi. Bela Lugosi in this, in this film doesn't play a vampire. He plays a crazed shepherd with a broken neck named Igor. And again, it's it's somewhat consumed with power and mastery and indeed revenge. Uh, revenge, again, is a big theme that the Nazis used, that they needed to revenge what had happened at the Versailles Treaty and what it led to the armistice in World War One. So there's this carryover. And Lugosi actually walks away with the film. As impressive as the others are, he's even more impressive. Now, oddly enough, though, when we get into the 1940s, Lugosi kind of drops out of uh, major roles. And one of the oddities, you can talk about the problem of being typecast, but Lugosi isn't even typecast in his own favor, in that there's a whole bunch of Dracula movies that are made by Universal in the 1940s, but none of them have Bela Lugosi in it. 
and that's Dracula's daughter and son of Dracula and house of Dracula. And either Dracula himself is not present or is played by another actor. And unfortunately, uh, Lugosi, who was really a very, very fine actor, ended up not getting significant work, whereas Boris Karloff did. And why that is, is kind of an open question in some ways. It's interesting that the, the last major universal film that Lugosi appears in is Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, where he does play Dracula. But he plays Dracula in a spoof. And he does a great job with it. Uh, he, he can be he can be funny as well as threatening. He carries all that with him. But unfortunately, as time went on, Lugosi got fewer and fewer major offers to appear in significant films where he'd been in, for example, 1939, he'd been in a film called Nanotchka with Greta Garbo, the major star of the period. So there was some recognition that he could be different roles and in different pictures. But it's, as time went on, he ended up making Poverty Row kind of movies, uh, Zombies Over Broadway and Bela Lugosi Meets a Brooklyn Gorilla, where he, more and more he was uh, he, he was making fun of himself, paying himself like a, a caricature. And then he ends up with the infamous Ed Wood, uh, whose films are funny, but all for the wrong reasons. Plan 9 from Outer Space and Glenn or Glenda and Bride of the Monster. All of these starred Lugosi, even though he's only on really was only one day of shooting in Plan 9. But Lugosi is kind of making making a spectacle of himself appearing in these films. But that's the only work he had. And so it, it's sort of a sad ending to someone who was a very powerful actor and who brought in this this conception of what the reality is when we're dealing with problems of evil and indeed the question of, of who God is. And God is not a man, uh, even though men will claim to be God. And evil will never be triumphant. Evil is self-destructive. And the imagery of the cross is very important in these films. And uh, Lugosi communicates that very definitely. But it's it's too bad that he somehow never had the, the recognition or even the, even the opportunity to play character roles in other kinds of films. And it's one thing to say he was typecast as Dracula. But they had then, but then they were making Dracula movies without him. So wh why that was is one of these puzzles when you look at uh, film history. But it's really too bad because Lugosi was an unforgettable presence on screen, and he was a really, really good actor. It's uh, it, in the context of what we could call the postmodern horror film that begins with Rosemary's Baby. You have this this focus on the triumph of evil. And this shows up in the Halloween franchise and Nightmare on Elm Street and films like this. That was never the case with these universal films. Evil was never triumphant. Evil uh, had had its own destruction built into it. And uh, no matter how elaborate it might have been, uh, it never could fully dominate the, the final result. And some of these films are, are obviously kind of hokey by today's standards, but they still remain fascinating because of the, the larger picture they have of what we could call the spiritual reality of good versus evil. Uh, good versus evil can be 
demonstrated in war films and in gangster films and in westerns and so forth and regular dramas. But to show it in a larger spiritual perspective is something else again. And the strength of Universal, even coming into the 1950s, certainly a film like Incredible Shrinking Man that we, we need to talk about at some point, which just has come out in a beautifully restored Criterion Collection edition. These films force us to look at the larger picture of what is truth and what is reality. And it can't be reduced to a narrow view of science and reason. So, Bela Lugosi was a trooper. He gave his all in whatever roles that he was given. Uh, he's always going to be identified with a part of Dracula. And at the same time, though, he, it should not be forgotten that he, he did have a chance to play some other roles that were very effective and are very memorable. And uh, I, in the future, we need to really spend a whole session, one or two, on uh, universal horrors of that period. Uh, and then even later on, the, the British Hammer films of the 1950s and 60s, that these films to this day remain interesting and really fascinating. And they have something to say to us. And I think that uh, this idea of authoritarianism and figures who are trying to act as though they were God has not gone away. That those issues are still very much with us. I'm not going to get into the specific politics of it, but it doesn't have to be said. Don't have to be um, backed away from the fact that uh, we still have politicians who act like they're an ultimate authority. And that goes back uh, to the warnings in these films that was saying uh, at the time that Hitler and Mussolini uh, were coming to power, that there's danger in, in these kind of figures. And especially there's also the issue that they don't really represent what is finally true and what is finally right and what is finally good and what finally is the nature of God. So that's all for now. I again recommend the, the Bela Lugosi films, which are still very much available on 4K and Blu-ray and uh, in, in different packages of the, the monster films or the uh, some of the other horror films. Lugosi featured in many of those he just did not get carried on through to the end of his career. But having said that, uh, he remains a fascinating character and well worth uh, rediscovering and reassessing. So that's all for now. And we'll be back again with 10 Times the Terror. Thank you for listening to... It's 10 Times the Terror. The podcast. One of my favorite films ever. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do that for again. Thank you for listening to 10 Times the Terror. This podcast would not be possible without listeners like you. You can find out more about our podcast by visiting our website, 10timestheterror.com. That's 10xtheterror.com.